This is the On The Touchline Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. In Season 2, Episode 6 of the On The Touchline Podcast, Aaron Rodgers and I had the chance to talk to Paul Jobson. And Paul is the head women's soccer coach at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. What drew me to Paul was actually watching his team play in a recent Big 12 championship match. Uh, I love the way his team pressed, and I love the way that his team defended in numbers. Paul talks a little bit about sort of that philosophical motivation of what types of players he looks for when he's recruiting them to his program at Baylor. Paul also has a pretty fascinating story in terms of how he got to where he is on the coaching ladder. And he and his wife actually were coaching partners at one time and even co-head coaches at Baylor for a period of time. And uh, raising a family and managing all of the responsibilities life has to offer, he talks about sort of the the juggling act he's had to do making that work for he and his family. So I think you'll find that pretty interesting. Before we get into the conversation with Paul, a friendly reminder that if you like this show, make sure that you subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. We are available on 11 different podcasting platforms and Whatever you prefer, go there, subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode of the show. If you listen to the show on Apple Podcast, go there now and leave a five-star rating and a review. If you've never done it before, it's incredibly easy and simple to do. And the reason I ask you to do that every episode is that it helps more and more people in the soccer community find out about this show. The goal of this show is to make the soccer world smaller for you, the listener, connecting you to players, coaches, influencers in the game, and helping you get to know people that you may or may not know previously. So go there, leave a rating, leave a review, and help more and more people find out about the show. All right, let's get into this episode. Aaron Rodgers and I talked to Paul Jobson, head women's soccer coach at Baylor University. My, I have four kids, and they all have multiple um, Barcelona jerseys. I have a sister-in-law, brother-in-law that are huge uh, Barcelona fans. So I'm waiting on the scarf. Well, so uh, we were talking. I was we were trading some messages on social about Messi, and uh, I saw you know one of your kids had a, a Messi uh, kit on, and. Yeah. Um, I don't know, this is probably two years ago, uh, the, the job my wife had at the time, she would travel to Europe uh, quite a bit. And uh, part of her travels took her to Spain. And so she came back with a, a Barcelona scarf and uh, we have it. Um, it's part of my son's collection. Uh, he's eight. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's starting to build a collection like you. So it's, uh, it's all yeah. good. That's fun. It's fun to collect. I've got, uh, I think I have a Real Madrid in a closet somewhere and I am from Atlanta and I have a um, Atlanta United uh, flag. It's just not up yet. So oh, nice. all kinds of things to add. Cool. Yeah. 
Um, just out of my own curiosity, uh, I, I would venture to say probably the the D one coaching uh, side of things is is pretty. You know, it's got to be pretty small. And the D D one women side of things has got to be even smaller. Do you guys happen to know each other uh, prior to tonight, or is this a, a sort of an introduction? Well, I think um, yeah. through the through the coaching world, I mean, I think we we've run across each other at recruit, recruiting events and in yeah. ca in casual conversation, and um, yeah. and then we we coached against. So when I was assistant at Kentucky, we played yeah. we played Baylor at Louisville in yeah. 2011. So yeah. that was that was the one time that we would have coached against each other, um, and I was just looking at the stats from that game. And Baylor outshot Kentucky twenty to nine, but in a <laughs> typical soccer fashion, Kentucky won the game two to one. <laughs> that was uh, we we felt like we played really well that day, but we did not go into the game probably thinking we had much of a chance there. But uh, I, that was very typical of us to get tons and tons of opportunities, but not be able to to put it away. So that became pretty typical Baylor for a while. And it was really hot. I don't know it if was you hot. remember that. I mean, you're, I do you, remember you, that. you live in Waco, though, so it's yeah. always hot in Waco in the summer. Yeah, it wasn't much for us. I remember, I think you guys had, were you guys like warming up in like weighted vests or something it, like that? They were cooling vests. The cooling vests. That's right. That's what it was. Cooling vests. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. It, was, it was actually, those cooling vests were kind of made popular by Australian Olympic athletes, mostly yeah. endurance athletes. And they had some kind of gel material in, and they were good. It's kind of the thing that you would put in your um, microwave or your freezer at home. And right. if, you, if you heated them, they would stay warm. If you put them in in um, an ice bucket, they would maintain that really cool temperature. So yeah. it was something that we thought, why not spend a lot of money because you have it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I remember uh, asking John about it before the game, and uh, he was giving me—I remember him giving me the details on that. Um, but yeah, I remember—I remember that trip for for sure. It was a good—it was a good trip. We enjoyed that. Yeah, somebody else. It's funny that you mentioned that because somebody else said that mentioned that to me the other day, recently, within the last yeah. week or two. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about those things. It's amazing how many gadgets and tools and things that uh, that are out there that. Um, man, there's just so much stuff like that, you know, that yeah. you're, you know, you want to try and see and see if you get an edge and, uh, said so someone was just like, Hey, let's just get back to the basics. Right. Maybe that was it. Maybe that was the Maybe. secret edge right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the cooling vest, we just stayed that much cooler. I think that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, get some more of those. I, I'm impressed. Uh, so I, I'm very similar to both of you that the photographic memory, that both of you had, um, you know, it, it's been a number of seasons. You've played a number of matches, training sessions, players have, you know, came and went. And uh, you both remember details about that day. That's pretty cool. I can yeah. tell you both goals that we scored and the goal that we conceded. It was, I just, and all the players that I've ever coached or been around, they, they always say, how do you remember all these goals? And I don't, part of it is because you watch a lot of video and so you see it right. multiple times, but also it's just part of our integrated into our DNA that you just remember these things. And, and the first goal we scored was an unbelievable strike from one of our very good players. And yeah. she was dribbling. Oh, she shot against her body against 
the direction she was dribbling across the 18 and it pinged off the far post and it was unreal. I mean, yeah. no goalkeeper saving that. It was no. just one it's one of those where we, I remember looking at uh, our staff, looking at each other going, well, they are in that one. I mean, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing you could do about that. I remember that. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then the game winner was a corner kick and Aaron Gilliland who plays for the Chicago red stars right now. Yeah. Uh, she's the starting fullback in um, for the red stars. She scored a header, but the goal you guys scored was a cracking goal too. I remember that. Yeah. She just yeah. lit that sucker up. Yeah. 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 That was, uh, that was, that was a fun weekend for sure. And I remember little details like that, but for me, I have a harder time remembering play by play stuff or even some of the goals, but just some of the little details that don't matter. Like I remember the vests. I actually remember <laughs> our, I actually remember our fourth official in that game. He was a very big, like big guy. And, uh, I'm, I can I can get a little chirpy, especially back then. I've, I've gotten a little bit older, not as bad as I used to be. But I remember he set me straight right away. I didn't say another word the entire game. It was great. I, I told him after, I said, man, I appreciate that because I was actually able to focus better that game than, than many because you put me in my place pretty early. I wonder <laughs> if the box score would say who that was because I'm sure it was somebody that we saw a lot considering Probably. Lexington and Louisville are an hour and a half away. That's yeah, I, I sure. don't remember that, but that's an interesting. We always we always tend to remember certain things. That's funny. Yep. Well, uh, that's a uh, I, I guess a good segue or a, a good pivot. Um, so, Paul, thank you for uh, taking time to uh, come on the On the Touchline podcast, and uh, my thanks to Aaron for uh, for joining us for this conversation as well. And uh, Aaron and I actually got connected because uh, I had him on the show um, during season one. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been very fortunate to stay in touch uh, since then. And um, he texted me recently and said, hey, uh, do you care if I ever jump on, uh, you know, some episodes of the show? And I said, absolutely. I would, I would love that. And um, so uh, two things I'll say, Paul, that um, one, I'm always fascinated. And the three of us, uh, you know, are somewhat similar um, by folks who have an interesting backstory and how they've gotten to where they are. Uh, in their coaching journey, and uh, was reading a little bit about, you know, some of the things you've done and um, how you got into coaching, and uh, you know, worked in sports information in a period of time, worked for a club in Atlanta for a period of time, um, you know, and then worked your way up in the in the collegiate game. Um, and two, I remember watching, uh, I guess it was the Big Twelve uh, Championship uh, last fall when you played West Virginia, yeah. and uh, I've gotten to know Coach uh, Izzo Brown and. Um, uh, that was it was one of the first times. I'm trying to think if there's another time where I actually saw you sort of live in person. You know, I was watching obviously my my, my family room here, but uh, right. seeing you actually, you know, coaching and um, you know, kind of what it was like. And um, you know, uh, obviously not the result you were hoping for that day, but um, yeah. still a really great match to watch and uh, and whatnot. So, so I think that is a good segue. For folks who don't know uh, about you and, and your backstory, and uh, tell folks a little bit about how you've gotten to uh, to where you are in your coaching journey. Yeah, it's uh, been fun because I have listened to to if not all, at least majority of the, the of season one that you had. And I really one of the things I've enjoyed is kind of everybody's backstory, and uh, you know, so I think it is interesting to hear. And I think it's good for young coaches to hear too that there's not one path to get. To a certain place and i think mine is different i did actually listen to one you did um, with aaron and enjoyed uh the different places that he had been and, and remember actually as i listened to that Aaron, i remembered 
you kind of pop it in and out of different places uh, throughout the career. And when you said, you know, you're with Becky Perley, like, yeah, I think, I think I, that makes sense. I remember hearing that or whatever. So it's kind of good as a refresher as well, uh, us as coaches here and where, where people have come from. But, you know, obviously, like most of us, I did grow up playing. Uh, I had an older brother, uh, have an older brother who uh, was my soccer idol. He's seven years older than me. And uh, I just wanted to do whatever he was doing. And uh, so I, I was playing soccer. In fact, I'm probably the one of the very few, if not the only um, American male who never played baseball because I was just so enamored with my brother had actually played baseball one season, hated it. So I was like, well, if he didn't like it, I'm, I'm not doing it. So I uh, went to soccer route, did do some other things, ran track, played basketball, uh, played football, which is funny. I'm five foot four. I did. I played basketball and I did play football. Um, but uh, soccer was my my passion from a sports standpoint. And my dad was my coach uh, growing up. Uh, and he was my coach up until probably, uh, I think when I, when I, I moved clubs, uh, maybe when I was a junior, a sophomore, junior in high school, and then decided if I was going to play in college, I need to make a commitment to play at a better club. Uh, so I was driving an hour, hour and a half, one way to train, uh, to play soccer. Um, honestly, never really thought much about coaching, to be quite honest with you. Um, when I was in high school, though, I did do private lessons with kids. Um, I was in a small town. I was one of the better players. I grew up in the same town and actually grew up, grew up with Clint Mathis. Uh, so he and I were the two people in the town that were the soccer players uh, at our age. So we found ourselves doing the, being the young kids, doing camps with younger kids. So it was probably my first introduction into coaching and enjoyed it, but never really thought much about it. Um, played in college, uh, went to Presbyterian College, a small D2 school uh, in South Carolina. Um, absolutely loved it. Ralph Polson was my coach. He's you know, gone on to be, he just retired from, from Wofford, but went on to be president of United Soccer Coaches and been a great mentor to me. In fact, he's the one that got me into coaching. Um, he taught a class at Presbyterian. Uh, it was called Coaching Soccer. And I think in that course, uh, I got um, I got my D license. It was a D license course. He was an instructor, so he did the course and you paid the money at the end of it and you got your license. So it was my first license. Um, and then he suckered me into, hey, Paul, there's a group of kids that uh, don't have a coach. And if they don't get a coach, they're never going to play soccer. Uh, I think you should do it. So pulled on my heartstrings a bit. I did it. Loved it. I had a small town team. There were boys and girls ages 6 to 12 playing in a U-12 league in, uh, I believe it was Greenville, South Carolina, which was, I think, 30 minutes away. So uh, travel, it wasn't. It was a rec league, but we were traveling to play in this rec league. And uh, that was my introduction there. Uh, finished up at PC and stayed on as an assistant sports information director, as well as Coach Polson's uh, second assistant uh, with the guys. Uh, and that was a fun experience uh, learning from Coach. And uh, from there, uh, went into kind of the real world. Uh, started working in my our family business in Atlanta, and I was coaching on the side. It was a hobby. I loved it. I loved working with young kids. I was working with uh, boys uh, that were 10, 11, 12 years old, and uh, really loved it. And it was a hobby. You know, I'd look forward all day at work to go work with my boys uh, and, and be outside. And I was fortunate enough to do that while working in the family business. And then I uh, was fortunate enough to connect with the Atlanta Beat and the WSA, the first women's pro league. I uh, got connected into there uh, and did um, work in the community with them, sold season tickets, you know, small pro league, like minor league baseball. You're doing everything. You're doing game day operations. You're selling tickets. You're, you're doing all kinds of stuff in that 
couple of years, I met my wife, Marcy, uh, who was playing on the team uh, at the time. And, um, you know, our paths obviously crossed there and um, started as friends going to church together, things like that. And uh, realized we were probably going to be more than friends at some point. So uh, I mentioned her because she's a big part of my coaching path as well. Um, left the beat and went to uh, two city organizations. I ran their youth soccer programs as an administrator and did some coaching on the side and uh, introduced a lot of really cool programs, I thought. Uh, and then ended up back at um, the, the program in Atlanta, Atlanta Youth Soccer, uh, that I was coaching at earlier and uh, ended up going back and being the executive director there. Um, and it was a really cool job, kind of a dream job for me. The administration piece of it is something that was uh, something I really enjoyed, which is odd uh, for a coach maybe, but enjoyed that. I was coaching a bit on the side too. And then uh, Marcy and I got married. Uh, she was playing, uh, just finished playing pro and her aspiration was to be a college coach. She always wanted to be a division one women's college coach and was going on interviews to be an assistant and whatnot. We got a phone call from Northern Illinois University uh, to be their head coach. Um, and we decided in that time that we would go into it together. The uh, head coach, so I was the assistant coach uh, and went to Northern uh, together. Uh, I believe that was in 2005. And uh, at that time, she also was called into U.S. Women's National Team for the first time. So first time head coach thought she had retired from playing and all of a sudden she gets a phone call. Hey, we want you to come into camp. Uh, we were fortunate we had an AD at the time that was very supportive and saw the benefits of having a national team player um, you know, at the helm of your soccer program. Uh, but there are only two of us. So she's in LA for two or three weeks uh, and in Illinois, one or two weeks out of the month, I'm running the program. So kind of head coach by default uh, in some in some ways. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. During the three years she was with the national team, we were at Northern, retired. Uh, we got a phone call from Baylor. And, uh, you know, as they say from there, uh, the rest is history, really just uh, we're blown away by not looking, really not looking to leave Northern at the time. We just turned the program around. Uh, I've been there three years uh, and uh, it was home for Marcy. And uh, but when Baylor called and we went on the visit, it was like, man, there's a an extreme opportunity here to do something really special, we felt. And um, that's how we ended up at Baylor. So probably a little bit roundabout thing. I probably never thought I was going to be a coach. I thought I was going to be in business. Uh, my brother was probably going to be the soccer coach. And our roles were flipped. God had different plans for us. Uh, he's now running businesses and I'm coaching soccer programs. So, and we're both happy with uh, what we're doing. I think that's a uh, absolutely fantastic and just incredibly interesting backstory. And, um, you know, my, my wife and I've had this conversation and I was telling a, a guest uh, earlier this week that, um, my wife isn't much of a sports fan. So if, uh, if she and I were to work together, you know, in a coaching environment, um, you know, she might take on an administrative role or whatever, but it would be me coaching. Um, so I, I guess I'm curious about not only, you know, working with your wife in the, uh, you know, professional and personal relationship that that is, um, cause I think that's incredibly interesting, but you know, how do you, is there a time to separate the two? Is there time to, um, you know, do you, do you turn it off or is it just sort of like, Hey, this is our life and that we just sort of, you know, check in, check out of it when we need to. You know, it's a, it's a good question. I, I get, we get that a lot because I think, you know, the first reaction is, Oh, well, how do you, how did you do that? How did you work? Because it was really only probably 
four years ago that we transitioned from her being on staff to not being on staff. So the majority of our, you know, we got married and started coaching together. You know, they always say, don't do these three things. Don't get married, move and change jobs all at the same time. Well, we did all of that within a month. And, um, and in that, not only changing jobs, but doing it together. Um, but we really felt like it's what we were, were, were called to do. And um, looking back on it, there's so many times over the last few years, we've said, how did we actually do that? Because, you know, learning the ropes of being married and, uh, you know, don't, you know, the old thing, don't bring work home. Um, we tried at one point to say, hey, you know, when we go out on a date, let's not talk about the team. What? And then we realized, what else is there to talk about? You know, it was our entire life. So we didn't have children. Uh, it was our life. And um, so we changed the rules a little bit as we went through and said, okay, let's just, uh, we can talk about it, but let's not try to make it the majority of what we talk about. Because we found then when we kind of opened the door a little bit, we didn't talk about it as much as when we were trying to avoid talking about it. And, and knowing there's certain times when we went out, we had, you know what, we just had to talk about it because it was our lives and we're both very driven people to, to have success in what we were doing um, at Northern. And then of course, when we came to Baylor, you know, we, we rebuilt two programs uh, that's difficult and, um, but rewarding all in the same. And I think we realized that, you know, we're, we're wired totally different too. You know, I'm more of an administrator type, type mind and she's definitely more of the uh, driven soccer uh, mentality type of person. Uh, and when we realized how we could balance each other and work well off of each other and not try to do each other's strengths, but really thrive and, and drive our own strength to things, we became a good team. And honestly, in working together and learning how we can be a team, we really learned a lot about what it takes to build a team, uh, not only with our staff, but with our, our players. So going from just the two of us to adding a volunteer at Norling to coming to Baylor and being blessed with so many resources and so many staff. I think it all really started with us learning how to work with each other. And honestly, I tell folks, you know, coming home uh, while our roles uh, are different at home than our roles are kind of at work, it still works the same way. I have strengths, she has strengths. I have weaknesses, she has weaknesses. And even in our home managing our four children, we have to play into those strengths and weaknesses kind of the same way we did uh, as, as coaches together. Um, and I think it's strength. We strengthen each other in that way, uh, as a, as opposed to maybe sometimes breaking us down. I know, uh, Aaron and I have talked about culture and, um, he's told the story before of, uh, when he first went to Ohio that, uh, you know, he used, he used the word winning a lot in, uh, in yeah. Aaron, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Um, in terms of, you know, treating people and culture and things like that. And, maybe a lead into to maybe taking our uh, conversation in that direction. Yeah, I think um, I, I've been so fascinated over the last six years with, with the whole idea of culture and what does that mean? And, and is it, is it important to focus on culture? Is it important to focus on, you know, the tactical technical aspect of your team? And I, I've just been so fascinated on that culture piece and, and when I when I came to Ohio, you know, I was taking over a program that was kind of um, well. You would have played against Ohio teams. You were at Northern, yep. so yep. you know, Absolutely. I mean, it was, it, it was a it was a solid program, but not not maybe accomplishing the things that the, the, the school wanted, the administration wanted to. And so I came in, and I came in with with the 
thinking that they wanted me to win. So that's what I said. We're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to win. And my care in my heart and my care for the players has never wavered. But my message to them has been altered because when they hear the word win, sometimes they disassociate with your care because they think if we don't win, then you don't care. And so Mm -hmm. I really have, I've kind of just, I've refocused my message and, and, and my really, the biggest thing it is I'm trying to help these players want to be here. They I want them to be a part of something, to have ownership of something and to want to be here as opposed to just going through the process. So, so for you, how, what do you define culture as? And, and do you place a lot of emphasis on culture? Because it is such a buzzword these days and you hear some people saying, well, culture is obviously important, but this is more important. That's more important. Or culture is just a buzzword. You know, you drive that. Uh, what's your What's your thought and philosophy on that? Yeah, you're right. It has become quite a, a buzzword. I'm a big I'm a big uh, kind of a big person when it comes to buzzwords and buzz phrases and all these things. I, I have a good time really making fun of a lot of it uh, in, in talks that I give. Um, because we're so caught up in the words, we don't really think about what they really truly mean when they initially were talked about. You know, like like Nike's used "just do it" forever. Well, that started as a real phrase where somebody was really trying to push somebody to get to get after it. You know, now it's just kind of become a hey, yeah, just do it. It's a, it's a slogan. You know, so I think it's kind of become that way. And so has unfortunately, so has family in our industry. We have a family. Every every player goes into a recruit's office and they hear we're we're a family, and and my thing is okay. Well, what does what does that mean? Because I think culture is very important. Um, it in in our kind of in how we've constructed our teams, culture is really number one for us. Uh, what is our team going to be about? Um, when we walked in the door uh, at Baylor, uh, they had you know an, I think nine or ten consecutive losing seasons. And the girls kept saying, hey, we want to win. They were saying, hey, we want to win. Uh, and we had to kind of say, okay, well, do you know what that's going to take? You know, and it's not probably what you think. And so we went from there and just started to build what we felt like the culture should be. And I do think culture should be uh, a family atmosphere, a family environment in college, because I think we're taking, we're taking young people who are graduating from high school. And we all remember we graduated from high school. We thought we knew everything and we were ready to be adults. And that's not the case. But our jobs as college coaches is to help these young people transition from when they think they're adults to when they actually have to become adults. And it's a very critical transitional piece in their life. And we can teach a lot of things in that outside of the game and in the game. Um, yes, we want to develop players. We want to win championships, all those things. I mean, listen, if we're not winning games, I don't keep my job. But I truly think that if the culture is right in my program, we're more likely to win. The only reason we were able to compete with you guys in Kentucky in 2011, okay, was because of our culture. In 2012, we run, we won a Big 12 championship because of culture. I did not have uh, a Power Five conference championship team, player for player. You look player for player. Uh, would not have played at most of the other top teams in our in our conference, but because our culture was good and we developed relationships and personalities and allow people to be kind of who they are, but kind of that teamwork thing that made us stronger as a unit than we would have been if we just said, we got to win. You've got to develop this. You've got to develop that. You've got to develop that. 
thanks for coming to training. See you tomorrow. You know, I do think that um, at least where I'm coaching, I think at this, at this, I think, I think division one women's soccer or women's soccer in general, I'm sure it's true with men too, but I think with, especially in the women's game, the culture is very, very important because they're going to really buy in. I think the buy-in is important. Another buzz phrase, right? Buy-in. But for me, I think culture is probably number, number one. And if you can get that piece right, and I don't think you have to get it right before you do everything else, but I think it's got to be really a big part you know, like gears. There's gears of of that, and the gears of the, the talent development have got to be grinding together to get you where you want to go. So, in follow up, so you, it's it's a really interesting point because I've really thought about that. So, you can be a great tactical and technical mind, but if you have a weak culture, is it still good enough to overcome someone with a great culture, but not as technically or tactically savvy and i guess that could that could go for a perceived level of players like you just said so so how do you what happened within your group that allowed that that great camaraderie culture family to transcend that perceived lack of talent or lesser talent than those that those some of your competitors i think one complete buy-in from the staff of knowing where you are and not wishing you were somewhere else. You know, I think, I think you have to love your players. And again, that can become a buzz phrase too, but I think you genuinely have to love your players. You have to care about every piece of them. Even the things that annoy you the most, you have to find ways to really care about them. And that's a, that's a tough thing sometimes. I mean, personalities can be very uh, conflicting, but I felt like the teams that I've had the most success with are the teams that I really found myself spending the most time trying to to love them and care about them as people. And, and in doing that, being unselfish in that, I, I ended up getting more out of them. Now, Marcy and I were talking the other day about, you know, sometimes you feel like gone are the days of players that will run through a wall for you. Uh, and we were talking about kind of the culture of uh, kind of the NCAA rules and how culture has changed and how you have to be careful what you say and careful what you do a little bit more than maybe 10 years ago. Um, and Sometimes you have to put up walls for players to run through for them to realize they want to run through walls for you. Does that make sense? Like sometimes you have to make it difficult. Show, sometimes it's tough love. Sometimes it's not always the arm around the shoulder, uh, you know, or the pat on the back. Sometimes it's the kick in the pants um, to get them to understand, hey, I do care about you. I do love you. That's the wrong thing. This is the right thing. Whether it's in the game or in culture or in life or whatever, I think that is love. And I think it goes back to family. What is family? Cultures talk about we are a family. Well, you know what? Families argue. Families have conflict. Uh, my boys love each other, but they are ready to tackle each other and pummel each other at the drop of a hat if you say something wrong, right? That's that's family. But a true family, a true culture understands that the common goal is the same. How we all are wired, we may be wired to think things can be done differently. That's where the conflict can happen. But if you can keep your focus on the ultimate goal that we're all trying to get to the same place, there can be a resolution there. And you realize, okay, let's just find the best way to do this. Let's come together and let's move forward. That's where leaders come in, whether it's coaches or captains, to say, okay, those are all great ideas. This is the way we're going. Let's go. Okay, let's go. You know, so I think those are all kind of intertwined there together for, for me at least. I love the uh, 
uh, sort of thought on the, uh, the the modern player or the the current day player, I should say, mm-hmm. in that um, you know I, I, I use the example that uh, the Nikki Izzo Brown gave uh, in in a season one episode that um, you know early in her career she said that she would give the players the brick. Now she has to gift wrap the brick. She has to put a bow <laughs> on it. She has to put some you know she has to bedazzle it. Uh, you know, make it look spiffy, whatever. Yep. And I guess, I guess I'm curious in your experience, um, how have you seen players change? And, you know, I, I'll throw the word technology in there because I, I would venture to say that probably has something to do with it. But, um, you know, uh, how have you seen players change uh, in your time in the profession? You know, I think that that's, it's a good question. And I think it, I used to be very quick to answer that question because I thought, you know, absolutely, I know what the answer is to this. But I think there are a lot of different circumstances and factors. And I do think that uh, I do think everything starts at home. Everything starts at the beginning. Everything kind of falls back on uh, parenting and, and raising the culture that's being raised, you know, how a child is kind of kind of raised. Um, and I think that uh, I, I think there's not enough accountability, quite honestly, for, for children and for kids and, and now becoming young adults. I think even some of the rules that are being created within our own industry are not making players accountable to decisions, uh, which is not going to bode well for them when they exit uh, college athletics and go in the real world and their boss is like, don't really care who's next, you know? Um, so, and I think it also doesn't allow us to, to nurture players correctly. It's not, you know, it's, it's not a hard line. Sometimes there's some nurture factor in there as well. So I think I think there's not enough accountability anymore. Um, I think you have to be uh, so careful about what you say and, and what you do uh, at times. Uh, you know, I think Nikki, by the way, Nikki's one of the most respected coaches in, in, in my mind. Uh, she's fantastic. Um, I hate playing against her teams, uh, <laughs> uh, but I respect her uh, so much in this game and what she's done for this sport and the game of women's soccer, just soccer in general, but specifically women's soccer too. Um, but she's got it right. You know, there's you, but as a coach, you kind of have to change how you're presenting things. And if you don't, and I just say, well, I just don't like how, you know, kids aren't accountable anymore. And I'm just going to, you know, walk away. That doesn't do any good either. So I think you have to find ways to adapt as a coach to do best for those kids in your environment and in your culture uh, to give them what you think they need to be successful in life, you know? Um, so I think, I think that's for me, uh, I just think some accountability, um, and some real, uh, some reality, everybody's kid is the best kid in the world. Um, you know, and it's, it's not fair to the kids, uh, some reality and some accountability maybe. Switch gears just a little bit, but, uh, what were you like as a player? Uh, not very good. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and I, I even I appreciate back. the honesty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I, I was fortunate to grow up with one of the best players to ever come through U.S. men's soccer and Clint Mathis. You know, we were uh, like brothers for a long time. He's a day older than me, but started school a year earlier than me. So he was ahead of me in, in school. Um, so we went to actually went to different high schools, but played cl- club soccer together um, from five to, you know, well, youth. Uh, youth soccer and then club soccer at like 10 or 11 all the way up to uh, competing for a national championship on the youth side uh, in, in 
when we were like 17 or 18. So I was fortunate to have players like that around me. Josh Wolf played club soccer. A lot of these guys, I was never at their ability level. And, but I knew that. Like, you know, I, I never, I could have gone to a D1 school and sat the bench for four years as a walk-on instead I played D1 soccer. But I knew that for me to play or have an opportunity to play, the D2 level was the right place for me. And I try to talk to athletes all the time in the recruiting process about opportunity. But um, I was an average player, to be quite honest. I was, I'm five foot four. Uh, I was quick. I was fast. Um, I was a, a good winger player and technical enough at the level to be able to play in the midfield at times. Um, but I, I, was, I was an average player at best. Never really had any aspirations to play after college. So I wasn't very driven when it came to, um, you know, my brother was the guy that he was the kid that was in the backyard all the time training his skills. I wasn't. So as an adult now, I look back and go, man, what, how good could I have been if I really did dedicate to the craft? Um, so uh, I was I was an average player. I was going to say Aaron's the uh, the resident goalkeeper of the group, so uh, <laughs> he, he was the guy trying to uh, trying to shut you down. Uh, <laughs> I'm older than Paul, though, so a little. I think a little bit. <laughs> Not much. Not much. <laughs> I just look so young. Yeah, no doubt. That's why I've got the the uh, just the, the dark cloud on my screen here, so you can't tell how old I really am. I have gray hair now. I have, you know, oh, it's going. Too. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm curious about um, the, the three of us are parents, and uh, hey, you know, real we quick, have, can, I, yeah. can I back up to player ability? Because I think there's something a point there. You can use it or not use it. Doesn't matter to me. Yeah, go um, ahead. I think I think sometimes there's this preconceived notion that the best players in the world uh, can be the best coaches. Um, I, I have seen in my experience and, you know, I was not a great player. I've surrounded myself with great coaches and great players to learn from them, the things that I don't know. And I think it's important for a young coach is uh, if there are things that, you know, the experiences that you didn't have as a player um, to be able to relate. Uh, I think it's important to get people in your inner circle that have had that opportunity. Cause I do think players, um, uh, like myself who did sit the bench at times, I think you see the game differently. You see it more from a coach's perspective. Um, you know, I think that's another reason. I think goalkeepers are great coaches. You know, I think they see the game from a different perspective. They see the entire field the entire time um, and they're engaged at all times. So um, I, I think that people should, excuse me, should be careful thinking about, well, that person was a great player. They must be a great coach. They know the game. Sometimes the best players have a hard time understanding players at a lower level that don't understand it at a high level. You know, uh, there, there, there's players that things just came so naturally to them. They don't understand why someone can't do something. Well, why can't you do that? You know, well, I have to be taught and I have to learn it didn't come naturally. So uh, it's something that's always on my mind is I'm really on my mind more when I'm trying to construct my inner circle of mentors and coaches and people that I want influencing me as a, as a coach and a learner of the game, so to speak. Uh, I want to I want to learn from people that have experiences that I haven't had, um, especially coaching women. I need women like my wife and my assistant coach, Chuck, his wife is Charmaine Hooper, Canadian all time great international. These people influencing me as I'm speaking with with young women in the game. I, I think that's fantastic because, uh, you know, I'll, I'll use the example two examples, um, you know, Steve Kerr, uh, you know, the the head coach of uh, Golden State right now that um, yeah. You know, he, he was a role player 
when he played for the Chicago Bulls. But he he knew what his role was. Right. Yes, he won a number of you know NBA championships and played with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and you know those great teams of uh, of the Bulls or whatever. But you know that has translated very well for him as a coach. And um, and plus too, I I think Steve Kerr just really gets people. Um, he just understands yeah. the psychology of it and. You know, he's working with mega superstars now um, with the, the team he currently has. But then on the flip side, you look at someone like an, uh, uh, Isaiah Thomas, right, that uh, played for the Detroit Pistons. He struggled everywhere he's coached, whether it be professionally, yeah. uh, whether that be in a manager, uh, a management type of role or a GM type of role. Uh, collegiately, he struggled there. And, uh, you know, a good friend of mine, he, uh, he played basketball uh, collegiately in college. And he, he always said that. He goes... You know, I, I just wonder if Michael Jordan was a coach, would he be a good coach? And he always sort of was of the opinion that he goes, I just don't think he would be because when you're at that level, you know, like a, a really talented athlete or sort of the, the high end of, uh, of the sport, sometimes it's hard to communicate that. It's hard to convey, you know, that. And and Aaron, you know, to bring you into this, that um, you know, I think you've even mentioned this to me at different times that, you know, you want to hire assistant coaches uh, that complements you in terms of maybe what, you know, what, so if you have a certain set of strengths, then, you know, you know that you have some weaknesses and, you know, you know, you have some areas that are some blind spots, but you want to hire people that can fill those blind spots. That way, you know, the program as a whole is whole if yeah. I'm making sense of what I'm saying there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if I could bring someone, someone on to work with our program, that's a better coach than me, then doesn't that make me a great leader or doesn't that make me pretty smart? Because I'm bringing somebody in that can do a great thing for our program. So, I mean, ultimately we have to surround ourselves with, with quality people first and, and people that, uh, that really can bring something to the table. And I really, I really like what you had to say, Paul, about um, the buy-in of the staff too, because Mm -hmm. that's such a valuable asset to have because if you are not all working on the same page then it becomes a little fractured and in one of the things that that I have I have no ego outside of I want to do the best thing for this program Mm -hmm. and if that's if that that means allowing another assistant coach or associate head coach or whatever it be run this part of the session or run these aspects of the of the technical tactical training and that's that's what it's going to happen because we all need to have that ownership of of this program and obviously i'm here as the as the captain of the ship but we also need a assistant captain or a first mate or that's that's right there right alongside us uh to be the lieutenant to to help drive us forward and i think that's that's so so important and i really respect what you had to say about about uh the buy-in not only of the team but of the of the coaching staff or the 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 staff in general yeah absolutely so uh the the three of us are, are parents and uh we have kids that are uh young uh let's face it right and so this uh crazy juggling act that we all do. Um, I, I know juggling a career, juggling coaching in the club game, uh, a parent or a dad to, you know, two girls uh, and a boy, um, being a husband, um, you know, being a son, uh, a brother. 
it, it, you know, I'll just come right out and say it. It's hard. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it you know, uh, in, I, I am definitely aware we, we all have 24 hours in a day. So I'm, you know, uh, no one should throw a pity party for, for me, but I, I'm curious, um, you know, Paul, how do you, how do you manage that? And knowing that, you know, time commitment, time commitment wise, you know, both you and your wife are pulled in a number of directions mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, to, to be the best dad you can or the best mom she can be to, uh, to your four boys. You know, I think one, it comes with, uh, one, you need to know who you are and you need to know what your priorities are and you have to set those things first. When Marcy and I got married and decided that we were going to go on this journey together, I I vividly remember we sat down and wrote down just some, some basic things that were going to be important to us. And one is, you know, our faith was going to be number one and our family was going to be number two and anything after that was going to be number three. So going into, to college coaching we even said you know we're going to try this we're all we're being told don't do this for your marriage sake don't do this but we felt like it's what we were supposed to do and i remember we said if at any point we feel like this is this is getting in the way of us having a good marriage we're out when we have children if at any point we feel like this job is not allowing us to be the parents that we want to be for our children we're out we're out and we've held to that commitment um a great example of that uh when my second child uh was between two and three during one of our fall seasons he got sick he had uh, scalded skin syndrome basically an infection that took over his body we had no idea what was going on with him uh it gave us a real wake-up call to we're in the fall our kids in the hospital marcy's with the kid i'm running the team and my athletic director was fantastic I was like hey your assistants are great. You guys do what you have to do. Um, but we were blessed with that. But it's kind of an eye-opening thing to say, hey, are our priorities really where they need to be? And that's where we started having conversations of, is it right for both of us to be co-head coaches of a major Division One institution? One, is it fair to our kids? Is it fair to our marriage? But is it fair to the team? Because something's going to have to give. Um, and so we've been talking about it, praying about it quite a bit. And of course, then there's number three was coming about the same time. And uh, we were fortunate we, we had made a decision and went to our athletic director and said, hey, we really feel like Paul needs to be the head coach and Marcy's going to take some steps back and be a volunteer. And this is the direction we really feel we really need to go for the program and for our family, number one. Um, what do you think? And we had a, a great conversation uh, with administration about that and they were willing to give us a, a shot at it, fortunately. Otherwise, we probably would have walked away because that was our number one priority. And I think you have to know who you are, you have to know what your priorities are, and you have to stick to it. Like Aaron, I'm with you, man, the ego is out the window. You know, uh, if I've got to go, you know, bus tables and, and things like that, I'll do it uh, to take care of my family. Um, but also uh, my wife is amazing. Uh, she is the reason we're able to do what we're able to do. Um, she is, uh, you know, I think she's the reason that I'm able to do what I'm able to do as a coach on the field, off the field, uh, the way we manage our family. Um, she's an absolute rock. And, uh, you yeah, know, that's, that's a ton of credit to her and just her drive. Um, and, you know, if anybody knows her, uh, they know that's just who she is. There's no dial. It's either on or off. And usually it's on. So we're always getting after it uh, and whatever it is that we're doing. Aaron, how about for you? Uh, I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but, uh, you know, the, ju- the juggling act, uh, 
of, uh, you know, being dad, of uh, being a husband, being a coach, uh, you know, working late hours, early mornings? I, I mean, I think I'm a little different in, in the sense that my wife has no, no um, attachment to soccer whatsoever. <laughs> she never played it. She didn't know much about it growing up. Yeah, I, I am blessed my wife gets it. Right. Yeah, right. yeah and, 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 but that's kind of the cool thing for me on the other side of things mm -hmm. is probably is equally as strong because your wife, she gets it and she knows right. my wife doesn't know, but it allows me to decompress from soccer when I go sure. home. So if I start talking to her about the team, she's like, oh, yeah, she looked really cute the other day. I mean, it's something <laughs> like that. It, right. it has, she had a really cool purse or, you know, whatever. Right. It, has, it has nothing to do with the, the soccer side of things. It's She yeah. just knows the players that are that come up and talk to her or talk to our kids and or mm -hmm. the dogs that they have, and that's it. So it allows me to decompress from soccer when I go home. And and be able to spend that that time with them, but and and again, she's amazing because, um, you know, we've been together for a long time, and and I've been doing this even when I was in the business world and I was still coaching part time. You know, she was so understanding of my passion for this that she knew, and there was never an issue, or if there ever was, she never let it be known. And and uh, she she I couldn't do what I do without her. And she's yeah. she's quite amazing. So di different different avenue, different path um, of a spouse, but um, getting the same results to allow us to our family to be priority in our lives. Yeah. So knowing Paul, that uh, you know both you and Aaron work in a uh, you know a, a high pressure, high stress uh, type of environment. Um, how, how do you take care of yourself uh, outside of the game and? Um, you know, uh, in terms of just, you know, maintaining your well-being, uh, you know, uh, because you're, you're pulled in so many different directions. Right. Well, it, a lot has changed uh, since I started, you know, Marsh and I were live on not too long ago that, you know, the beginning of our career, we were jumping into training. That's how we stay fit, right? We're jumping into training and we're doing fitness. And, you know, it's gotten to the point now where, like, I haven't had cartilage in my left knee uh, in 24 five years probably. So it's arthritic and I can't really, you know, I've, I'm done running marathons and half marathons. And uh, now it's, it's walking, it's biking, it's uh, eating well, just trying to pay attention to what I'm doing. And I think there's some accountability there too, that I feel to my team where I don't want to step on the field and be so far out of shape and then ask them to do something that one, I know I can't really do anymore, but if I absolutely had to, I could give it a go. Whereas if I'm, totally out of shape and, you know, you know, as wide as I am tall, which isn't very tall, but would look very wide. It's not good. It's not, it's just not a good thing to be able to, you know, I just don't think you have the respect of, of your team in that manner. If you're, you're preaching, Hey, stay hydrated, eat well. Um, don't do these things, stay fit. You know, I think as a coach, there's some accountability that I feel to my players uh, to do that. First and foremost, I feel a, a priority to my family to stay healthy. My dad died, when I was 18, he was 56 years old uh, because he didn't take care of himself. Great man, love him, best friend. I hate, you know, it was a struggle for me in college without him on my side for, for soccer, but it was in his control. And uh, that's been kind of my goal is that uh, my youngest kid will be 18 when I'm 56. Uh, and that's the standard for me to be like, hey, I'm not, I'm not going down that path. So 
Uh, there's some accountability there between me, my team, my wife, my family. But things I'm doing, I'm walking, I'm biking. I have a stand-up desk, believe it or not. Otherwise, I get lazy. Uh, and just little little things and um, trying to watch what I eat. Yes, I enjoy snacks. I love candy. I love ice cream. Um, I love we. I live in Texas. I love Mexican food, um, queso. I mean, I'm, I I do it, but I think everything in moderation and um, just being careful uh, and accountable to 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 those things. I think it's just important. The club that I coach for had a coach's preparation meeting uh, not that long ago. And I showed up to the meeting with my Duke Tig brand notebook. I had a number of fellow coaches, some that I know uh, well and some that I don't, ask me, where did I get that notebook? Go to duketigbrand.com, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. And upon checkout, use the promo code BROADWATER19, B-R-O-A-D-W-A-T-E-R-1-9 at checkout. So I had my Duke Tig brand notebook XL with me that night. It has fields already lined, place for notes, and a place to keep all your thoughts in one place. Can't swear by their product enough. Go to duketigbrand.com and at checkout, use the promo code BROADWATER19. So in terms of... Uh... I guess, where do you see this going uh, for you, for your family? Um, you know, uh, it, you think Baylor's it or do you see yourself, uh, you know, maybe have uh, higher aspirations in the game? Yeah, you know, when uh, when we first got to Baylor, uh, gamer with no kids, um, we started having success 2011, 2012. We got here in 2008 and uh as you start to win, the first question is, well, you guys are doing really well. What's your next step? And to be quite honest, we felt like if we could turn this program around and, and get it on the national stage, there really wasn't anywhere else we'd want to go. You know, we were attracted to the Christian mission of the, of the university. There are things that I can do at this university uh, that I can't really do anywhere else because it's a Christian university. Uh, we're, you know, we're a Christian family and our faith is important to us. And I had a mentor uh, tell me one time, he said, because we were getting calls and, and, and whatnot. And that happens when you have success too. And mentor told me, he said, because Paul, you and Marcy can't do what you do the way that you do it pretty much anywhere else in the country. So be careful thinking the grass is greener on the other side somewhere. So we're very intentional about our decision-making process and absolutely love the community here. Absolutely love the university. This is not a recruiting talk, by the way. This is me being very honest and genuine. Um, I'll be here as long as God and, and my athletic director want me to be here um, because we really are passionate about this community uh, in Waco and, and Baylor and um, the young people that we have right now. I don't have any aspirations to be a professional coach. I don't have, I mean, to me, this is the, this is, I think this is greater than any of that for sure. You got a I lot got, more job security as a college coach than a professional <laughs> coach at this that's level. What I, Absolutely right. So uh, I, I think I'm at the top of the game right now. I absolutely love it. And I, I try to uh, not be a downer about, you know, when things get tough or, or whatever. We've had two of the best seasons in, in, in the history of our program the last two years. We know we're not guaranteed tomorrow. So we're just going to get back to work and keep working hard and do the things that, I mean, I, I know you're a Gary V fan. I've seen that. So am I. You just 
when things work, you just get back to the things that got you there, right? So it's always back to the basics for, for us. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I'm glad you, you bring up Gary Vee because, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's so funny that um, his, his message is so incredibly simplistic. Yet yeah. he, talk, he talks about all the time of how so few people will actually take action on what he says. And, um, you know, I, I've told Aaron this, that I feel like I am where you guys were early on in, in your coaching career. And, uh, you know, it, admittedly, I, I started my coaching journey far later than I should have. Um, but I, I'm so thankful that I did. And even though it may have been later than I wanted or, you know, looking back on it, go, man, I wish I you know, was 25 when I did this uh, instead of in my 30s or whatever. Um, the point is I started. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and Gary Vee talks about that all the time that, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I'll be 38 this summer. The, the fact that, um, you know, 38 is not old. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, how, you know, how old you are, Paul, is not old. Same for you, Aaron, that, um, yeah. I mean, so, you know, getting out of this, uh, idea and, you know, I, I very much appreciate what you said about your father because, uh, you know, I lost my dad two years ago and he was 70 and, you know, looking at that now and I'm like, man, like 70 was not old, you know, so to, yeah. for, for your dad to be in his fifties, you know, I mean, that's even younger than 70 and the fact that, um, you know, the tremendous impact that that must have had on you and, and whatnot. And that, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just think that for me, that it's everything that you guys have mentioned of, uh, you know, part of its patience, part of it's having a great su- support system in my wife, um, because I echo everything you guys said about your wives. Um, and, and my wife probably falls more on the air spectrum than, uh, than on your spectrum, Paul. Um, you know, she'll comment on, uh, you know, oh, I like those, uh, you know, girls' uh, boots or, you know, her cleats or whatever. Um, And and that's fine. Absolutely. I mean, you sort of need a yin and a yang, you know, at times uh, to kind of balance yourself out. Um, So I'm going to make a really hard pivot here. And uh, this is a question that you probably have heard if, uh, you know, you mentioned you listen to the podcast. Uh, So what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong um, when it comes to soccer in this country. And you can take that in any direction that you would like. Yeah, I knew that was coming. And um, <laughs> it doesn't make it any easier to, to answer it. I think it's a great question. I think it's a question we really need to be continuously asking uh, about our personal journey as coaches, because I think uh, there are too many fingers that are being pointed uh, in different directions. I think we are somewhat of a disadvantage in some ways because of the size of our country, that there are so many different ideas. Um, But I think we're also at an advantage that if we can embrace the different ideas that we can probably come together and do something pretty incredible. So until we can kind of get together on on not not one way is right or one way is wrong, but hey, like, you know, this melting pot of a country that we have should be our strength, not what's breaking us down. I'm tired of hearing about our country's too big and we can't do something. I mean, the the Netherlands do so well because they're so small. And yeah, that, that is an advantage if that's how you want to view it. I want to view our size and our, our experience and knowledge and so many other things and our, the advantages we have and the, uh, the blessings that we have. That should be our advantage. And we, until we can kind of embrace those things as our advantages and not our disadvantages, we're going to have some problems. And I think um, holding each other accountable and having some patience. Uh, we want everything right now. And, you know, I don't know 
I don't know what coaching decisions in the national team are right or wrong. I don't, but I don't know that we've uh, really given anything enough time to happen because we want it now. Um, now, things that I think that are going there, I think there's more good than bad, absolutely, because I think we really need to embrace um, the differences and, and the different opportunities that we have in this country um, and, and resources uh, that we have in this country to rely on. But I think ultimately it comes down to those of us that coach young people uh, and just really making people fall in love with the game. It goes back to culture, guys. You, you need to have a culture in your community where kids love the game. Tom Beyer, uh, you, you know, soccer starts at home, football starts at home. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to really get into to the things that he's saying with my young children. I even noticed, uh, yes, we're a soccer family. There are soccer balls, baseballs, footballs in my house. My kids are very coordinated, not because their their parents are coordinated. I think it's because there's always a ball at their feet or a ball in their hands. And I think that my kids don't have to be athletes. They don't. But I think there's some some great fundamental things that can help them uh, in their growth as young people to just introduce things early. So kind of all together, I think there's a, a, a big responsibility uh, on us as uh, the hands and feet uh, of this soccer community to really start young with kids just enjoying the game and just enjoying it and stop getting in the way of development. And, and I don't even mean anything other than stop yelling at kids, stop yelling at referees, stop, you know, at a young age, let kids enjoy the game. If a kid doesn't, you know, ends up not wanting to play soccer, great, let them do something else. If they want to play soccer, let them play. I just think um, we've got to allow kids to kind of do what they're attracted to. And I think if we can kind of come together as a soccer community, here, I'll give you, let me give you a pet peeve of mine because I think it kind of weaves things together here. We're the only sport, uh, and I think it's just in this country, and I think a lot of times predominantly in the women's game, uh, that soccer has to be played a certain way. I mean, how ridiculous is that? I mean, and you guys, if anybody's listening and they know how my teams play, you know that I don't subscribe to uh, normal, uh, what you would call pretty basic, beautiful, the beautiful game. Well, I've never had a team like Barcelona. I've never had uh, 13 U.S. national team players on my team. You know, we have to play in a way that we can win. Now, I think that that's something that we need to embrace. Yeah, you know, I went overseas and I've talked with uh, coaches in other countries and they play different ways, but they're so curious how I approach the game because they want to learn something new. Maybe there's something you can gather from. But hey, this thing that death by a thousand touches and, you know, great if your team can do it. But I've, I've played too many teams that need to possess at my level. They want to possess the ball because they love the way it looks. Well, it doesn't look great when the ball's in the back of your net, you know, and you're losing. Do something that you can to win. Um, and I think that, you know, play, play in a way that you, can, that you can win. And I think if we can embrace that as a culture, uh, develop our players well so that we can keep the ball when we need to, uh, those sorts of things, attack when we need to. Uh, listen, football – their schemes, their ways to play. Basketball, it's either man or zone, depending on who, who you're playing. That's how we're how we how we approach the game too, is just based on what we're presented, can our players adapt? Players need to be adaptable, I think. So kind of a rant there uh, for me. You touched the hot button a little bit, but I don't I just think we can't think there's an absolute right way and an absolute wrong way to do things. We have to have an open mind and we really have to come together with our differences to be able to grow in any way, shape or form, no matter what the topic is. So Sorry, you got me on a rant there, Jason, but um, <laughs> well, I, I, I love it. Uh, and I, I fully subscribe to, uh, to what Tom Byer preaches because uh, same thing, Paul, that, um, 
you know, you, you go in any room in our house and you're going to find a ball of some sort, uh, most likely a soccer ball. But, um, yeah. you know, my, my son and I, from time to time, I mean, uh, you know, we like to pass the ball or, or whatever. I mean, and, and it's exactly what you said of allowing kids to kind of figure it out on their own. And I was talking with someone, um, you know, in, in sports psychology, and he's going to be, uh, he's one of the guests here in season two. And he was saying that, um, you know, something to the effect of what we have done in this country is basically, you know, we are taking away children's ability to problem solve and, uh, you know, sort of figure it out on their own because we're so willing to give them the answer. And the reason we're willing to give them an answer typically comes from trying to protect them, you know, protect them from some of the bad things in life. Well, we all probably grew up in a generation where, I'm going to sound like a total old man here when I say this, but, uh, you know, we grew up in that generation of like, no, failure is okay. And that it is a part of developing who you are as a person. Right. And sort of, uh, you know, he uses the phrase getting, getting punched in the mouth. You need that to happen in life because politics, it's everything you mentioned earlier of when you walk into that job interview or you have a job and, you know, if you're late or your performance is below the line or, or whatever, like you said, your employer, they don't owe you anything. You know, they yeah. could, they could say, see you tomorrow. Great. You know, we're, we're on to the next person. Um, and, you know, teaching those habits or whatever that, uh, I, I, I just think resiliency, I think adaptability, um, I mean, you can't put a value on that. And, and I'm, yeah. I'm, ran, I'm ranting here too, because I yeah. think, well, you know, go ahead. You know, one thing my dad used to say, my, and listen, you need to know, my dad was my soccer coach from five to 16 years old. My dad never played soccer. He was a track athlete and a football player. And my dad was introduced to the game because his children played. That was that generation, right? They didn't grow up in America playing soccer. They they learned it because their kids wanted to play. Uh, my dad was a student uh, of the game and became a very good coach because he understood how to lead people. He knew how to, uh, he, he used to always say this, and he said it because he coached, he coached boys, but he said, hey, Paul, soccer is a thinking man's game. It's a thinking person's game. You know, I, he goes, I played football. They gave me instructions. I went out and I did it. Now, listen, I'm not downplaying football. It's a very tough sport. And there's a lot of thinking involved, but soccer changes. You take one step one way, everybody else has to make a different decision. The ball hits a bump or makes a crazy bounce or, you know, it's constant motion and constant thinking. You're right. It's problem solving. And it's because we don't want our players to fail, especially the young kids. We want to, as they say, joystick them and help them through the process. But the real learning comes by them failing. I even tell my current players, uh, I want you to work as hard as you can knowing you're going to make mistakes. Please make mistakes. Those are my coaching opportunities. That's where we get better. And I think you're right. There's just too much of uh, not allowing them to make decisions. To We do a young program from actually two-year-olds to nine-year-olds once a week. And it's instructed by some of my players and soccer people in the community it's 30 minutes of introduction to the game. Like, hey, dribble around. Hey, kick it to, you know, just very basic stuff. Then we let them play for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And the response to that has just been through the roof because it's like, wow, this is, my kids are having a blast. You know, there's not a coach barking at them to do certain things and there's not referees and there's not, it's just, it's basically Sandlot soccer with very little instruction. Mm-hmm. I think that's where we, where we pray to go at a young age. Well, and uh, knowing that all three of us, uh, you know, uh, have worked or are currently working in the club game and that, um, 
You know, I, I, I'm very fortunate and very um, appreciative of the opportunity that I currently have in, in the club that I work for. I also know that, um, you know, pay to play and in the club scene is a, sometimes it's survival of the fittest, I, I, I guess I would, and that's at a really young age, all the way up to, you know, some of the players that you guys are recruiting uh, to come play at your programs because um, in, you know, uh, I don't come at this with a, a great solution in terms of, hey, you know, there's a better alternative out there. Um, you know, but I guess it's a, a bit of a critique of sort of pay to play in the club scene. And I think, I guess I would say, even at the youngest levels, the professionalization of what we're trying to do, you know, my, my son's eight years old. He should just be playing, right? Like, you, you don't have to be trotting across the country to go play in tournaments. You don't have to be, you know, saying that we're state cup champs or whatever. Like, what does that mean? You're eight, you're eight years old. It should be about fun. You know, it should be about developing that lifelong affinity for the game. And, um, you know, I'm going to tell somebody to get off my lawn here before this episode uh, is over. <laughs> it sound like Clint, Clint Eastwood here, but, uh, you know, uh, anyway. Um, so, yeah. So, Aaron, I'm going to give you the last word if uh, there's uh, one last question you want to squeeze in for Paul, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up that way. Can I flip it back to the soccer soccer side of things as far as, like, technical, tactical? Because I think, Paul, you, we talked a lot about culture, and, and it's such something that I've been so fascinated by, you know, and, and my biggest goal is, is – to allow the players to find that joy in playing and want to come to training every day and, and want to be there because it's something that they enjoy. It's a game. Uh, games are meant to be fun. Um, but you, and you mentioned this a minute ago about the style or the reputation that Baylor women's soccer has. And, and that's a culture thing because you year after year have been able to repeatedly be successful with pretty much, I would say, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, the same style, the same, mm -hmm. the same com very competitive team, um, very hard to play against, very gritty, very um, determined. Um, some may, you may say direct, um, mm -hmm. very physical, how do you maintain that culture? Because that is a cultural thing. Because every year right. you got to plug different people into different places. Mm -hmm. And how do you maintain that? And how, how how did you create that? And how did you how do you maintain that? Well, I, I think what people don't see because they're not in the day in day out activity of it, and they haven't. You know, we've been put in a box. We really have been put in a box. Um, but mentality is always going to be number one with our program mentality you're going to get out there you're going to work hard you're going to get after it um we always say if if the the technical piece of your game isn't on for a certain day you can always work hard always you can always do that because our technical game is not always going to be where it needs to be um but you can always work hard and what people forget is when we first got to baylor we did we did defend and kick it out of the back uh because we were surviving we were in survival mode i didn't probably have um I love every single player that I've had in this program, especially that first group that really bought into kind of a vision of what we thought we could do, uh, but they were not, they were not 
top level division one soccer players. They weren't, which is why they probably hadn't been successful. So we felt like if we could keep quality kids and still get quality kids, but start to increase their soccer ability, we could grow. We were going to teach defense first and we were going to high pressure. Okay. And I've always said, I'm going to play in a system where we can be successful. So what we've been able to do is develop a mentality where we've been able to bring people in and all we're doing, we're dropping them into, do you have this mentality? Not, you know, can you kick a long ball? Listen, if you look at my programs over the years, we've gotten to where we're doing two things or we're doing a lot of things. One, we're going to continue to pressure because I want the ball as far away from my goal as possible because, right, I score more goals than you, I win. So I'm going to keep the ball towards your goal. But we're going to be very good defensively. My forwards know how to defend. My midfielders, my defenders, we're going to defend. All right. And then we're going to move the ball quickly from the back to the front. All right. If that means my right winger is a, is a four-time, uh, she's a great soccer player, but she's also a high school four-time 200-meter gold medalist. If I can put her in behind your back line, guess what? See you later. Right. <laughs> and then what happens when that back line drops off because they're tired of getting beat? Well, my midfield's wide open. So now I, over the last two years, three years, I've had a midfield that actually can connect passes. People are like, Baylor can't pass because we're putting a box, you know, honestly. Yeah. And I'm fine with it. I don't really care. Um, just, you know, you've got to, you got to deal with it. Um, but, you know, I had a, a kid who's on the Brazilian national team that played for me two years ago. She was special. You know, I had Julie James, who's you know, just been drafted with, uh, with New Jersey, and she's a special player. And I've got more and more special players. I've got a kid now. Taylor Moon, all, I, mean, I could go on and on, the kids that we're bringing in that are allowing us to adapt as a team. So is there one thing that we've held on to? Yeah, mentality. You're going to be tough and you're going to work hard. We just did a three-day uh, shoot uh, for championship productions to do some videos. And I hope the one thing that comes through those videos is the mentality that these kids have day in and day out. I now have uh, top-level Division One soccer players on my team, but they also have a mentality uh, that we are not going to allow to go away. As good as we get, we're going to get, we're going to continue to recruit better and better soccer players or they have better soccer minds, can do a lot of different things, but they need to be multidimensional types of kids, recognize uh, the game in a certain way, but they've got to have a mentality. they got to be tough. So that's, so what, that's our philosophy. At what point did you feel like it became more player-driven as opposed to coaching staff-driven? Um, you know, I, there was not a defining moment in that, um, but I truly do think in year one with the kids that weren't very good, when we went uh, in our very last game, we'd already been eliminated from Big 12 tournament uh, uh, contingency. It was the last game of our regular season. We were at University of Texas. I think they were somewhere uh, 10, 11, 12th in the country, uh, and we tied them in Austin. Uh, the excitement, like we had just won the World Cup. I think there was a moment where we realized, okay, this might actually work. And then when you recruit kids and say, hey, you know, you know, you got to work hard and they see it, they see what that looks like. Um, and, and I've had coaches say to me, and I've actually heard, this is crazy. I've heard coaches ask my players after the game when they've just gotten beaten, how can you play like that? <laughs> and I've had players look at coaches and go, I freaking love it. <laughs> you know, I mean, you talk about running a wall, running through a wall for somebody. There's a culture there where if everybody's bought in, everybody's going after this thing. Um, it's pretty special. It's it's pretty special, and uh, it, it has gotten to the point where you know we have to put in reminders to new players. This time of year is great for that because it's the spring, and we're really training a lot of the young kids. The seniors are gone, and uh, redeveloping that culture every year. Again, back to what we talked about with Gary V earlier. 
do the things that work. And when they work, go back and do them again. Don't say, well, we've arrived now. We've had two elite eight runs and two big 12 champ now three big 12 championships. Now, now what do we do? We start playing pretty soccer and let's knock it around and let's get back to, to work, you know, because I don't think even the teams in our country that we think play pretty soccer, when push comes to shove and they're under pressure and they're losing a game, they're whacking the ball down the field. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I think we have to be really careful back to my point earlier when we start talking about a right way and a wrong way. The right way is the way that you need to do it to win. The wrong way is if you do it over and over again and you keep losing at our level, youth level is totally different. The kids, it's different, teach them different things. We're just talking about college soccer right now uh, or professional or whatever. You, you, unfortunately, culture is great, but if I don't win, I lose my job. Uh, so uh, I, I think those are things that are important to understand. Uh, I get questions from recruits all the time. Hey coach, how do you play? You know, uh, because I know it's being said in you know other camps about our program, and when I explain it, it makes a lot of sense to kids. You know that you know we play in a way that we can be successful, and that will that will morph and it will change. We used to hey, listen guys, when we were at first at Baylor, we played man marking with a sweeper. Had success. Uh, you remember that we were doing that when we played. You I was guys gonna say I, I think that's what you did. In we played man marking yeah. with a sweeper, yeah. uh, and we adjusted based on what other teams did. Now we play predominantly a four three three because I have players that can play out of the back now. I didn't used to have that, but now I'm, I'm recruiting skill I'm de- and we're developing skill while they're there so we can do more and more for our team to be successful in different ways. You got to adapt to adapt to survive. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's phenomenal and, and, and huge credit to you and, and your wife and the staff that you that you have, because to be able to you can you as a coach can for one or two years drive that culture. But yeah. after that, the players have to drive it for you or with the along with you more than anything yeah. because they have to have that ownership and yeah they have uh, to have the buy-in right i mean like you yeah. said and it and it does need to be fun because it's a game but it, it is quite a grind at times too so it isn't always fun but when the kids are really bought into the process and the day-to-day uh piece of it, it it's fun i mean you, you'll see we had three really grinding days uh, and then today we started with a, you know, with a fitness test and then we had some fun. I posted a video on, on social media earlier tonight, just a game that we were playing because, hey, it can't, it can't be all work, no play. Um, you got to have some fun because that helps build culture, too. You, you can totally wear these kids down if you just go after it too hard. And I think some people are questioning as well. How do your kids not get worn down? Well, one, they know I love them, absolutely care about them. Uh, and we monitor their their progress and, and their fatigue and all those things. And. We have a lot of fun too. We have a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, you 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 have to enjoy the process, and and that yeah. means that sometimes the process is is uncomfortable. Sometimes the process wears you down, but you got to enjoy it. And I actually had a conversation with a player that was in the office today, and she was talking about the grind of the season or the spring, and and I yeah. said, listen, I hate running, and that's what I do to stay fit. I yeah. run, and I hate it but I enjoy the process of what it, the health that it brings me at the end of the day. And sometimes Absolutely. we go through a training session or a week where we have four exams and we have to get up early for weights and we have to, we have to go to training in the afternoon after weights. And, and, uh, but, but the enjoy and the fulfillment that you gain from it, I think is, is what they have to see from at yeah. the end of the day. And, and hopefully it results in, in, in wins. Yeah. Because ultimately winning's fun too. 100%.
<laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, Paul, you have to uh, channel your inner Gary V, and uh, they have to eat dirt, right? It, uh, I have to eat dirt. Yeah, it's all part yeah. of the process. Uh, Paul, if uh, if folks want to connect with you and and follow along with uh, the Baylor Women's Program, uh, how can they do that? Well, uh, our program is at Baylor Football, uh, B A Y L O R F U T B O L, uh, on social media platforms, and then I'm Coach Jobson, uh, J O B S O N. Uh, on uh, social platforms. What my Marcy and I also run a, uh, a soccer camp uh, platform as well. That's uh, Jobson Soccer. Uh, so we're also on that platform as well. So things that we're doing, but you'll see a lot of things with our children on it uh, as we go through that. But those are the platforms that we're on uh, that we can connect with. We'd love to connect with, with really anybody. I'm also in uh, the LinkedIn network as well. Um, not looking for a job, but I do enjoy that community um, a lot, a lot of information being shared in that community as well. And I'm not sure what the, I think it's just Paul Jobson, uh, at LinkedIn. Cool. Well, Paul, thank you so much for, uh, joining us on the latest episode of the on the touchline podcast and, uh, wish you, wish your wife, uh, wish the boys in the, uh, the Baylor women's soccer program, uh, nothing but success, uh, ex except when you're playing West Virginia. <laughs> I can understand. Just I can understand. kidding. Just I understand. kidding. Uh, well, and uh, I was going to say, if you're when you're in Morgantown, um, I'll keep an eye on the schedule because uh, I'm going to pop. I'll pop down in in uh, not sure how how long your uh, you know travel uh, uh, you know your your trips are or whatever, but I'll, I'll definitely pop down um, in. Uh, and say hello and, and, and meet up with uh, you guys in person if, uh, if time allows. They're, they're, yeah, love to do that. they're big time. They charter in, they charter out, man. That's, <laughs> that life, I, I left that life six years ago, man. <laughs> we, I, really, the only trip that we ever really have an opportunity to charter is West Virginia because it's a crazy trip sometimes. But I don't. Yeah. I think our schedule is moving to Thursday, Sunday. We won't be chartering anymore. But they're, they're at us this year with them, uh, I think, in twenty. Uh, but we'd love to meet you face to face. Aaron, I know I'll see you on the road and look forward to catching up there. But Jason, I appreciate what you're doing uh, for the game. I love I love uh, seeing your your hustle and I've enjoyed kind of keeping up with uh, season one and looking forward to, to season two here as you, you plug along. And if there's everything you need, please don't hesitate to, to reach out. My sincere thanks to Paul Jobson, the head women's soccer coach at Baylor University, for being the latest guest on the On the Touchline podcast, as well as Aaron Rodgers for jumping on this episode uh, as a co-host. New episodes of On the Touchline come out every Wednesday, so make sure you subscribe to the show. That way, when Wednesday rolls around, you'll never miss an episode. In some weeks, you will get a bonus episode, just like last week. So those typically come out on Saturdays, but make sure you're subscribed to the show. That way, if a bonus episode does pop up, you'll be sure that you receive that in your feed. You can connect with me on Twitter or Instagram, very active on both platforms. And my handle on both is at SoccerCoachJB. And if you're in the soccer soccer community or just looking to do some networking, if you're a coach, if you're a player, influencer in the game, certainly would welcome that and uh, connect with you that way. 
Last but not least, it would mean the world to me that if you like an episode of this show or like part of a show or something a guest says on this show, to share it out on social media, especially on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever your preferred social media platform might be. Help more and more people find out about this show and help us continue to reach more and more people and grow just like we've done since this show has taken off, which has been an incredible ride for me as the, uh, the host of this show. All right, new episode coming your way next week. And until next time, I'm your host, Jason Broadwater.